Well, good morning again. We just rounded out five weeks looking at the similarities that we encounter as the body of Christ to a soccer match. The similarities between what we do uh, every day as a, as a church and, uh, and how that pertains to a soccer match. We looked at how we all need to uh, have boundaries, how a soccer match can't be played unless lines are painted on the field. So we need to know where the game is to be played. So structures and organization matters in the life of the church. But we also talked about how nobody shows up at a soccer match, and the only reason they went is to admire how well the lines were painted. Uh, Nobody does that. But there always has to be someone that's willing to paint the lines and someone who knows the rules and someone who is on the field to enforce the rules. These are all the people we don't like. When we watch soccer, by the way, these are all the people that we complain about when we watch a game, but uh, we have to have those people, right? We have to have people that are willing to know uh, the boundaries. So the local church needs that. We need structure. We need to not let the pendulum swing too far to one way or the other. If it swings too far over here to the organism side of the church, then there's no boundary lines and we're just a bunch of people living like hippies and loving each other and and, uh, and, and love is enough, and we never confront sin, and we never have structure, and we never know uh, where we're supposed to be. But if we let the pendulum swing too far to the organization of the church, we stifle everybody that wants to live an organic life and wants to live a life in community with people. We stifle it because we keep people inside boxes and say, no, 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 you need to do this, and it needs to look like this, and it needs to be like this. And so if the pendulum swings too far to one way or the other, it's dangerous for local church. And that's what we talked about with that one. Then we went into talking about how we all need to want to wear the same jerseys so that we're on the same team for the same purpose. And that's to win, right? So if a team is playing soccer, they they need to want to be on the same team for them to win. Uh, If you have a, a selfish teammate in any sport, uh, we talked about how we have people that plague locker rooms. Now, I, I am a very uh, happy and pleased and proud Steelers fan. And if you've been following the NFL, we've got a problem right now. If you're a fantasy football player and you drafted them, you really got a problem right now. But the Steelers, one of their best players is holding out for more money. I'm over it. I, I, I kind of, if I'm being honest, I just kind of hope he sits out most of the season and at the end of the year he's not wearing a Steelers uniform anymore. But uh, I'm kind of done with it because it's selfishness and all that stuff. But it's plaguing the locker room. News, news sources that come out of Pittsburgh are all talking about how the players are like he chose himself over the team. and all that stuff. It's throwing off the team. So if the Steelers go out and lose to Cleveland today, I'm going to be very upset with Le'Veon Bell because it's all his fault then, right? It's not, but I'm just trying to make a joke there. You were supposed to laugh should have one of those signs up. Anyway, we talked about how like you can all wear the same jersey, but if someone's selfish in that, someone wants to be, make the team all about them, it throws off team unity and it's hard to win. It's hard to all move together for the same purpose. If you have one person on the team saying, listen, I know better how to do this than the rest of you. So there needs to be a selflessness and a unity that exists by everyone saying we happily want to wear the same jersey, be on the same team, and work towards the goal together. So the following week, we unpacked 
how now we get that. We know we're supposed to be. We know we want to be on the same team. What's our role going to be? Because not everybody can play. When, when Dustin uh, preached through this, he used the analogy of like a, a U8 team where, where kids don't really know the rules of soccer, but it's like flies. As soon as the ball comes around, all of them just gather around it, and, and they all just are kicking the ball and kicking each other. There's no real structure to it. But when you watch a World Cup game, there's a strategy there. There's, uh, there's players that know what their role is on the field, and they know where they're supposed to be, and they're usually in the right spot at the right time. And they know that, that, that if, if their, best for their best job that they can do for the team is in the goal, that's where they play. So we need to know where we fit in the local church. We need to know that God has wired us all individually as members of it. One body... Many parts, right? And we got to function out of how God's wired us. And we need to use the local church as a resource to help us discover how we're wired and how best to get fit into the local body. We shouldn't wait for someone in the local body to come tell us what we should be doing. That's the pendulum swinging too far to structure. We also shouldn't wait for everybody to just knock on the door and say, hey, I want to help. That's letting the pendulum swing too far over here. We should have some balance where we're, we're going up to people and saying, like, listen, man, you've been sitting there far too long. It's time to get into the game. It's time to start doing stuff. Use the gifting that you have to help the local church, to help it establish itself, to help us all win. Then we talked about a bye week. Talked about how there's always time off for these athletes because they're, they're in uh, the prime shape of their lives, but they still need to rest. They need to rest their bodies. Sometimes players get a, a day off because even during a game, because they, they, their bodies can't handle that much. They need to rest. And everybody involved in the organization recognizes that. And they're willing to take the risk of maybe getting, uh, a, a, having a bad game with that player sitting out to make sure that that player gets the rest that they need. And we looked at Scripture and how God has ordained rest for us. How God modeled it himself and how, how Jesus reinforced it. And we talked about how terrible we are as a society at actually doing that. Because it's a step of faith. It's a step of faith to stop long enough to do nothing except just be. And just recognize that what we have hasn't been provided because of our hard work and education. What we have has been provided to us because we have a gracious God who allows us to have it, to live in it, to experience it. And when we take rest, true, God-centered rest, that's us looking at God and saying, I recognize that even if I stick it out and work another day, it doesn't mean that I've provided anything for this. It means that you have, so I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop my striving, and I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to rest, and I'm going to recharge, and I'm going to recognize that this all comes from you. I'm going to recognize the source. That's Sabbath rest. It's not about taking a nap. It's about finding rest in the fact that none of this rests on your shoulders in the first place. So we talked about the importance of time away from the game. We closed out by just, we want people to understand that there, we have a very good coach, knowledgeable coach standing on the sidelines that knows what's going on in the field better than the players do. And when he calls in a play, we as the players trust that he knows how to run that game better than we do because that's his job. 
When I'm on the field, my job isn't to coach the team. My job is to do what plan the coach has laid out for the team. So the importance of having a theocracy in the local church isn't because we fear God, isn't because we're afraid of what He'll do to us if we don't obey. The importance of having a theocracy is because we understand that He's a good Father. He understands what's best for us, and we trust that, and we have faith and believe that and live in that. And by living in that, we find joy. And then we partner with people on that field and we do work together in joy because we all understand that the person that's telling us what to do and how to do it knows what we need better than we do. He's way more gifted than us. He's way more talented than us. We all have that humble posture looking back at our coach and understanding that he knows what's best for us and he has our best in mind. That's the importance of a theocracy in the local church. We never get what we need when we pursue what we want apart from what God wants. Did you catch that? We never get what we need when we pursue what we want apart from what God wants. We went into that series after we spent some substantial time in the book of Judges. Now, Judges taught us what life looks like for God's people when they continually stray away from Him. You remember the Judges cycle? It almost got annoying after a while, if we're being honest, didn't it? We're looking at these people and we just want to thump them in the head sometimes. We go, what is wrong with you guys? And then we, then we have to eat more humble pie, realizing that we put ourselves in that same vortex all the time where we believe God, we cry out to God, we need God, God comes, God delivers, God gives us peace and rest and joy and fulfillment and we feel good and then when in our feeling good we stray and then we hit a rock bottom again and we cry out to God and the cycle continues, right? We're no different than the people in Judges. I'm no different than them. The thing I really enjoyed about going through Judges was I found information I didn't really know connected to the heart of God, connected to the gospel. And the thing that I didn't enjoy so much that my heart needed was I saw myself in the plot line of the Judges far too often than I wanted to. Judges taught us what life looks like for God's people when they continually stray away from Him. Now we also saw that God cares for his people, and he loves his people in spite of all that rebellion. We saw a loving God interact with his people. We didn't see uh, uh, God's judgment. We didn't see the ground open up and swallow up all the people and say, you know what, we're starting over. We saw a God who had high standards because he's God. And he gave those standards to his people and said, you striving for these standards should remind you that you are not me and that you need me and that I want to be what you need. And they didn't get it. The story of the Old Testament continues on that path. Adam talked about 1 Samuel last week and the people come and they say, we want a king. We don't want you to be the voice of God to us anymore. That's not what anybody around us does. That's so old school. Let's stop. You're analog, Samuel. We want to go digital. We don't like your kids. You're super old. You're ineffective. Get out of our way. Give us a king. 
That's their tone. And that tone is directly related to this cycle where they just are like, you know what? We're done with this whole God thing. If we look around, there's all kinds of people prospering economically, agriculturally. There's all kinds of progress. And they're doing it this, that way. We're kind of tired of this whole, like, we'll come to Samuel. Samuel tells us what to do because he hears from God thing. We're just kind of tired of it. But God, later in the Old Testament, through the prophet Jeremiah, addresses his people. He tells them that he won't remain silent to their cries forever. Now, by the time the prophet Jeremiah is on the scene, things have gotten pretty dark for God's people, and he's warning them that it's going to get worse. He tells them, prophet Jeremiah tells God's people that they're about to get taken over and put into exile under the Babylonians for 70 years. And in those 70 years, God is going to be silent. Now, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Some people jokingly say that because nobody ever listened to him, which is true. Nobody ever listened to him. But I think he was the weeping prophet, and I believe Scripture supports that he was the weeping prophet because of the news he had to share to God's people, that the heart of God had been broken by his people's rebellion and sin. So delivering this message was not one of joy. It was one of responsibility. It was one of obedience. It was one done out of respect for his king, but it was not one that he found great joy in delivering to his people. But listen to Jeremiah 29, uh, 10 through 14. If you have the Bible, go ahead and open that up to Jeremiah chapter 29. It's a pretty commonly uh, quoted passage. If you're using the Bible in the, in the chair in front of you, it's page 449. It's often quoted, but it's often taken out of context. Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you a hope, right? We see it on graduation cards. We give it to people whenever they're in a bad way. You know, when someone's sick or not feeling well, we always point them to that passage of Scripture. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying contextually, sometimes it's not well used. Listen to this. It's, we'll start in verse 10. I just told you what's happening. He has given the people this prophecy. He's given them the prophecy that they're going to be taken into exile for 70 years by the Babylonians who are literally the worst of the worst, right? Starting in verse 10, chapter 29, Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now listen, God never gives judgment without hope. I want you to catch that. God never gives judgment without hope. The judgment was there. You're going to be in captivity in Babylon, with the Babylonians. And I'm going to be quiet for 70 years. This isn't a vengeful, spiteful God saying, and then you'll learn. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, everything that you've done in rebellion has led you to these consequences. And for me to be a loving father means you have to experience this. You have to experience this. I don't like it, but you have to. See, the picture of God that Jesus gives us in the New Testament is that of the prodigal son. The son who comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. He essentially looked at his dad and said, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I'd have a bunch of money right now. So instead of you dying, because you, you didn't do that yet, how about we just all pretend you died and you give me your money now? Because I'm tired of living here, but I don't have any money, so I need you to give me my inheritance now. That's the, that's the version of the prodigal son. That's essentially what's happened. And what does the father do? If you're familiar with the story, what does the father do? 
he gives the son the money, right? And then it tells us the son left, went to foreign lands, and spent that money on sinful living, right? It doesn't give us a whole lot of uh, um, specifics on how that money was spent, but we do know he squandered it, wasted it, and sinned a whole lot. So don't let your imagination run too far on that. The whole time, though, where's the father? This father, who's been completely disrespected, completely uh, treated like garbage, where is he at in the narrative? Every day, walking outside and watching down that lane because he believes one day, God, please, one day he'll come back. He's got to come back. I love my son. I want him to come back. It's every day. And one day, as the son has hit rock bottom, eating out of a pig trough, realizes, my father's servants, they live better than this. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to apologize to my dad. He's not going to want to forgive me because I was so horrible to him, but I'm at least going to ask if I can be a servant in his household because I know they get treated better than this. I can picture him on his way back to the house, rehearsing in his mind what he's going to say, running all the scenarios through. You ever have to do that? You ever have to meet with somebody and you're running through all the scenarios? Okay, if they say this, then I'll say this. If they say that, then I'll say this. If they say this, I'm going to say this. You know, all those things. If they say this, I don't even know what I'll do, right? Running those through all their head. I'm picturing this young man. I don't know how far he has to go, but the whole time, just smelling like garbage and, and pig mess whole way back to his house, trying to run through his head. How's this going to go down? How's this going to go down? And when his father sees him, he runs. He runs. Like full out run at his son. And when he gets to him, he doesn't care about what he smells like. He doesn't care about what he's done. The ugliness is gone because his son has returned. And he looks at all the servants in the house and he says, let's throw the biggest party we've ever thrown in the history of our household because my son was once lost and now he is found. That, that is the picture of God that we need to see when we read through these prophecies and when we read through the Old Testament because that is God. It doesn't change. It's not like God is saying, you made, your, you, know, you, you made the mess in your bed, now you've got to sleep in it. So verse 10 in, in Jeremiah 29 says, For thus says the Lord, when seven years are completed from Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. I will fulfill my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. And then he says... For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Well, what is that plan? That plan has already been laid out. It's the plan that we will be rescued and redeemed from the mess of sin. That a Messiah will one day come. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Verse 13, I want you to really hear this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, 
And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God's owning the fact that he could stop this. He's owning the fact that he could stop this. But in this moment, the most loving thing he could do for his people is to let them experience the ugliness their hearts want. That's the most gracious thing he can do for them. Because without experiencing the ugliness that they think their hearts want, they'll never truly know that God is so much better. So he's letting them experience it. And it breaks his heart. He says, so I'm going to be quiet for 70 years. And these things that Jeremiah is telling you, hold them in your heart for 70 years. Hold them there because I'm not done with you. I will come back. I will listen to you. I will hear your cries. I will provide you hope. I will provide you an answer. I will provide you a future because I already have it mapped out for you. I will provide those things. And when you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you get to the point where what your flesh has been crying out for ends and you don't want that garbage anymore and you come to me with a full heart, I promise you, you will find me, God says. None of this half-hearted crying out because we're in a mess anymore. God says, no, I want you to get to the point where when you cry out to me, you're crying out to me from a complete desperation of understanding everything you thought you wanted isn't stuff you needed. And when you get to that point, you cry out to me, I promise, I promise I will be there and I promise I will hear you and I promise you will find me. Then when I'm found by you, I will restore you. I will restore your fortunes and I will gather you out of that mess. And I will bring you back to this place. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, he says. So I wanted to start there. To let you know where we've been and where we're headed in our sermons and why. One of the key components of who we are as a church is that we long to discover the truth. Discover, disciple, deliver. That's what we're about. All those things centered around the gospel. We want to discover that truth. We want to be discipled in it because discovering it's not enough. You need to know what to do with it then. And then delivering it is the local church coming together, create ways and space and challenging us to take that, that knowledge and give it away so other people get to discover it, be discipled and deliver it. It's a cycle. One of the key components is discovery. The truth is Jesus and his story and the words of God the Father reside in this book. It's our guidepost. It's his word. So we want to make sure that what we seek, and I mean that we seek God and find Him, that when we seek Him, we seek Him with all our hearts. Now we're not going to be able to say we do that if we're not centering what we say on this. So what we say needs to be from here. So you'll hear every once in a while when we do this five weeks on comparing the local church to soccer match. And we definitely dig into the word of God through that. 
But for the most part, what we want to do from up here is just open a book of the Bible and just tear it apart and dissect it and see what God has for us. We want to discover God's word. We want to take the time from the pulpit to dig into it together. We discover God's character when we do that. And when we see God's character, you know who he really is on the inside. We grow in our understanding of who he is. We grow in understanding who he is. We fall more in love with this eternal entity that so loved us that he sent his son to redeem us from the death sentence that was sin that came to condemn us. The people of Judges had a promise that they needed to learn to trust. God's character had been displayed for them over and over and over again. And they should have been able to trust that. They definitely had the opportunity to. See, we have the full picture here. We know that it wasn't just a promise we're holding on to. We've seen the promise fulfilled. When Jesus took his last breath on the cross, he said words, it is finished. The promise is fulfilled. And then he made a new promise. Go into all the world preaching my name and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And one day when that place is ready, I'll come back and take you with me. That's the new promise. We're living in that one. The promise that the people of Judges didn't completely understand or live under was one that we've already seen fulfilled in Jesus. So, we wanted to come out of all that to look at the now what question. That's why we looked at the soccer analogy. So we come out of, of the judges and we, we look at what they did and it ends, the book of Judges ends so dark, it says, and, uh, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. It just, it, it, it ends by telling us these people didn't learn much from this whole thing and it's just going to get worse. That's essentially what the tone ending Judges is. So we wanted to come out of that and say, so what? So we talk about the analogy. Five weeks, we just wanted to look at the soccer analogy. That's how the church functions, and that's why. So now what? Today, we're going to start a series in the book of Titus. It's on page 690 if you're using the Bible in front of you. That page actually doesn't have a number on it. So if you're, And the next one next to it doesn't have a number on it because it's the book of uh, um, Philemon. Am I right? Yeah, thank you. Man, I had a brain fart there. I forgot about my uh, books of the Bible. I had to run that song through my head and hadn't gotten that far. Anyway, the whole letter sits on one page of the Bible in front of you. One page. The whole letter. But don't let the size of the letter deceive you. This letter has a whole lot of substance in it. I hope you can join us over the next few weeks because we're going to look at it pretty close. There are those of us who who use something or do something and you don't even think about how it works. Right? Like, anyone want to admit that? Like, you use something almost every day. You don't care how it works. You just know that it helps you get done. What you, is, is anyone wired like that? You don't care how something works. You just want to know that it gets the job done, right? My son Isaiah is not like that. My son will berate me with questions on how things work. He wants to know how things work. 
What I would, when I'm cleaning the junk out of the roller in the vacuum cleaner, he's laying down on his stomach next to me, like asking questions about. So, what, so when it pulls, and then, then there's suction that pulls everything up, and the bristles are pulling hair out of the carpet. You know, like he's asking questions. He's very inquisitive. He wants to know how things work. You know, most of us drove here, or at least rode in a car here, I'm thinking. We don't have a train stop close enough by. But we don't, we don't actually sit and think about how there's this, this internal combustion engine in, right in front of us. Unless it's Steve's car. Steve's car's a Prius. It has that, but it's, it's not very powerful. So we don't have to worry. But in, in an internal combustion engine behind the firewall, which is behind the dash, there's literally thousands of explosions of gasoline being exploded right in front of your face. Over and over and over and over again. And every explosion pushes pistons and turns camshafts. And it gets axles turning and it moves the car. Most of us don't care about that. We don't care about how it works. We just want to get in the car, turn the key or push the button if you have a newer one. And then go where you need to go. And if it doesn't do that, then we start to think about how it works. Because it's not doing what it's supposed to do, right? Now, the reason I say all that is... I think that too many times we take the word of God at face value. We don't really care what it means. That's why we take verses out of context. That's why people say that they can do whatever they want and they can lift buses over their head if they want because they can do anything through Christ who gives them strength. But contextually, that's not at all what Paul's talking about. In Philippians 4, believe me, I have a tattoo tomorrow. It's a fun story if you ever want to hear it, let me know. Too many times we don't, we don't seek to know how things work. We don't seek to know the deeper answers behind what we're hearing from God's word. And Adam referenced the Bereans last week, if you remember that. In Acts 17, 11, it says that they, they committed themselves to the daily study of God's word. They wanted to reprove what was happening. They heard what Paul said. They heard what the apostles were saying. And then they, they took that and they were like, okay, that's good stuff. Let me make sure it matches up with what God's word says. Now, how many of us do that? We should do it. We should do it. And so what, the reason I bring that up is because when we do a study like this, we're going to take our time in this one-page letter. We're going to dissect it. Because I want to know how it works. I don't want to just assume it's going to get me where it needs me to go. I want to stop. I want to tear it apart. And then I want to put it back together, and hopefully there are no parts left over. Right? That's what we want to do. We want to dig in. We want to take it apart. We want to see how all this works. We want to see what Paul's saying to Titus. We want to see what Paul's saying to us. So we're just going to do an intro today just so we understand what the book's about, and then we're going to start tearing this thing apart over the next few weeks. I hope if you're here today, you've seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life. If you haven't, I only have one question for you. What is wrong with you? Does anyone care to admit that they've never seen It's a Wonderful Life? Why am I not surprised? <laughs> anyway, It's a Wonderful Life is this, it's like a classic Christmas movie. But it's a great story. It's a story about George Bailey, played perfectly by Jimmy Stewart. 
And how he doesn't feel that his life has had any amount of significance. He hits rock bottom one night and he decides that the best thing for him to do because he hasn't had any significant impact on the world around him is to stand on a bridge and jump down to an icy death. But his guardian angel Clarence shows up and intervenes. And, and as, he, as he interacts with Clarence, Clarence shows him what Bedford Falls would look like without George Bailey. And he gets to see it. He walks through town and he interacts with people that he, he thought he knew, but they don't know him because in Clarence's version, he's letting them see he never existed. He sees that his life counts and it matters. He, he, Clarence shows him a vision of, of, of Bedford Falls without him. He realizes that he has indeed lived a wonderful life that's touched a lot of lives in small but impactful ways. A kindness that was shown, a, a dollar that was loaned. He, he, sees, he sees his life, he sees a whole town completely change without his existence in it. And he realizes in a humble way that that he has been able to make an impact in this town through very small ways. He was standing on that bridge because he thought he hadn't done anything big enough. He didn't travel enough. He didn't do the things that, that the world was saying you needed to do to be successful. And Clarence, his guardian angel, shows him, no, 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 life isn't about the big things. It's about the small things along the way. Being faithful and touching people's lives in the small things. The reason I bring that up is that's sort of what Paul's doing in the letter to Titus. He's giving us a picture of a life that, that touches people in small but impactful ways. A life that, that has eternal consequences. He's mapping out the good life, the real good life. So a little background on the letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul in about 60 A.D., now, this is between his first and second prison sentence. He spent some time in the clink, as we know. And, uh, and so between his first and second, which we don't have any record of his second, we don't have any writings necessarily from that phase. We knew he was in jail for that second time. And so between that first and second, he writes this letter. This is part of Paul's letters called the pastoral epistles, or epistles is just a, a weird word for the word letter. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus make up these letters and make up the pastoral epistles. Some say that these letters were written to usher the church out of the Acts model. The Acts model was very incarnational. What I mean by that is people were doing life together. They were selling land and giving it to those who couldn't afford things. It was very much family-oriented. It was doing life together, very much knowing each other. We don't see a whole lot of structure in the church in Acts, and a lot of people throughout the ages have tried to make the claim that Paul wrote these letters because he wanted to see the church usher out of that incarnational mode and more into an institutional mode. That the church needed more structure, that, that the Acts model didn't work anymore. But when we read these letters from that vantage point, they feel kind of boring and stuffy and they feel like an instructional manual. Now remember, the Word of God is living and active. I get a picture, when I hear that, that verse, the word of God is living and active, you know what I picture? I picture animals at the zoo. Because you can go to the zoo on a hot day, and they're all alive. Like, they're all living. 
You go to the big cat display, and you're like in awe that you get to see lions, and then you hear the lady tell you that they sleep for 19 hours a day, and you just happen to be there during all 19 of them. You know, if you've been to a zoo 100 times, you've only seen a lion move three times. You've only seen a tiger get... They tell you tigers love to swim, but you've only actually seen them do it once. I've been to a zoo probably 100 times. I've seen tigers get in the water, swim once. I've seen them in the water just like sort of taking a nap with their head out of the water once. So they're living, but they're not necessarily active. And I think sometimes we look at God's word like that, that it's, that it's living. Yes, it's God's word, but it's active. It's, it's moving, right? And then we go to the reason I'm bringing up the zoo analogy is because when I go to the big cat display, it's awesome to see them, it's neat to see them, but they rarely do anything. And then you go to the primate house, and there's these Colobus monkeys who never stop moving. It's awesome. I can stand there and watch them forever. They're like kicking each other and wrestling and, and flying around the room the whole time. We could just stand there against the glass and watch those things all, time, all the time. I mean, why? Because they're living and active. It's appealing, Right? When you see something be living and active, it's appealing. So if these words, if these letters from Paul were meant to be taken as a, as a boring, stuffy instruction manual, then they wouldn't be in the Word of God. Because God's Word is living and active, which means God's church needs to be living and active. It can't be stuffy. Listen, if a sermon's boring, it's not the Word's fault. It's the guy who's delivering the message's fault. If church is boring, it's not the Word of God's fault. Because the Word of God has been told by an eternal source is, is living and active. If you're at church and you're bored, is either something wrong with you or something wrong with your church? There's nothing wrong with the Bible. So the, the Word is living and active. So we see this, this, this Paul coming in and making a reinforcement argument to say that first... Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are all to build upon the Acts model. As things grow, there does have to be structure added to it. So there, at this point in history of the church, there's leadership coming into play. If you see in the book of Acts, they come to the apostles and they say, hey, listen, some of the widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. This is your problem. You guys are the ones in charge. You guys are the ones leading this. And they say, listen, we can't, we can't do that and do everything else. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to appoint leaders who are capable of it, who are called to it, and we're going to call them deacons, and they are going to be in charge of the service end of the local church. Why? Because as it grew, they didn't want to see aspects of the gospel overlooked. So they had to appoint leaders to make sure these things got done. So that's where the structures come in. This isn't, this isn't Paul making an argument to say that it all needs to be institutionalized. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying that as it grows and as you start to figure out what your structures look like, you have to still be incarnational and the gospel still has to reign supreme. So Titus is in Crete to appoint leaders, but there isn't any conversation about leadership structures or processes of being an institution. And I say that because if these books were meant to be instruction manuals to a stuffy church culture, if that's what they were meant for, then don't you think there would be very specific ways that it's telling us to make leaders, to grow leaders, and to put leaders in place, and to give them their jobs? 
There'd be like job descriptions in here, all of that stuff, right? But that's not even mentioned. When, when Titus starts talking about qualifications for guys in leadership, he doesn't talk about this checklist. He just says, these guys must be godly men, so look for these character traits in them. And if they have these character traits or exhibiting these character traits, please get them in the guys that are helping to lead the church forward. It's not about a title. It's not about a race to get prominence. It's about living in the character of God and being recognized as someone who wants to love God well. And then, then other people in the church saying, hey, listen, this guy wants to love Jesus really well. He's well equipped and he fits what Jesus is saying is a culture that we need to create here. We want them to help, help us steer this thing. So instead, it's all about how the gospel needs to be the central point of everyday life of the church so that the world can be reached for Christ. That's the thesis. This book is all about how the gospel needs to be the central point of everyday life of the church. Why? So that the world can be reached for Christ. That's Paul's concern. So, a little bit of information on Paul, just to catch us off to speed. Paul is a man who was called by God for the sake of God's people. Paul got called into the position he got called into for our sake, for the sake of God's people. Verse 1 in Titus chapter 1 says, Paul introduced himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That's what he is here for. That's one version. The ESV says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's why he's here. That's why he's writing the letter. He sees his job to, to be to give people a vision of the truth and to show how that truth will lead to a life of godliness, a wonderful life, you could say. But what is truth? We'll look at verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 in, in Titus chapter 1. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promises before the ages begin at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Hmm. Another version says, the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began at the proper time, manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The truth that creates a good life is the gospel. That's the truth that brings life and then changes lives. Also, that's the truth that matters for all of life. In chapter 1, Paul also says that we need to be uh, warned that those who depart from the gospel, listen to this, Paul says in Titus chapter 1 that those who depart from the gospel become unfit for doing anything good. Let that sink in. If you depart from the gospel, you become unfit for doing anything good. He underlines that point in chapter 2 because he tells us then that the grace of God teaches us to live godly lives. In chapter 3, he tells Titus to emphasize the gospel so that people may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. We need to give each other a picture of the gospel that creates a life of good works that changed our lives 
so that we become profitable in doing work for our Lord. It changed our lives, and we become profitable in doing good work for the Lord. And this good life, it overflows into other lives too. A gospel-changed life will be, uh, this should sound familiar from going to any of the women's Bible studies. But a gospel-changed life will be adorned in the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorned in it. Now, another translation says it this way. It will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So the structure of Titus is all about getting us all on the same page so that we don't relive the mistakes of the people, the judges. Chapter 1 is all about keeping the gospel central. It's all about making sure that the gospel stays supreme. Titus is told to appoint gospel-centered leaders who can encourage and rebuke, but all through the lens of a complete and full gospel. Chapter 2 is all about keeping the gospel central in everyday life. Everyday life is the context both uh, in, in what the gospel is to be lived and in which it is to be taught. So keeping it in context in everyday life means in how it's lived and how it's taught. And in chapter 3... It's all about making sure the gospel is central for the sake of going outside of the church. We keep the gospel central to everyday life so that the world is reached. In the book of Acts, we see the importance of organization to make sure that the gospel mission keeps going. In Titus, we discover those same concerns. This overarching desire and passion of the first century church was to be church in a way that kept the gospel central for life, growth, and mission. So as we take some time to study through the book of Titus together, we're praying that it will inspire and equip us to make sure lives and journey church does the same thing. We're going to sing a song to close. That, that it just, if I can use the term, wrecks me every time. There's a part in the song, the song's called Death Was Arrested. If you're on the worship team, you can come up. I know you're waiting for me to give you a good cue, so I'll just make it an awkward one. There's a, a line in this song, a, a part of the song that says, Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. The first time I ever heard this song, I was at a conference. And they, were, they had some lights on in the, on the stage, and, uh, and they had some other instruments playing. And it said, our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. I'm already crying whenever I'm sitting in this moment. It says, darkness rejoices, though heaven had lost. And in that moment, they dropped out every instrument, every light in the building. And it just got eerily quiet for about eight seconds. And all of a sudden, you start to hear the drums come in. And then the lights start to come up. And, and then all of a sudden, the whole band kicks in, lights come up right in the room, and this line starts. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested, and my life began. So the point of me saying all that, the point of us singing this song is because once the truth replaces your truth, life begins. 
when the truth of who Jesus is replaces your version of it? Or your truth that you've come up to? Because it's not relative. It's absolute. Jesus is the only way. And the whole book of Titus is about making sure that the church gets that right. So once the truth replaces your truth, life begins. We band together in this thing called the church and we live out that truth together. That's what Titus is all about. That's why we're studying it. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the gospel. This amazing truth that all hell rejoiced as though it had won. You took your last breath on the cross and in those moments of darkness, it seemed like we lost. I can't imagine what it would have felt like to be there in that moment. But then you arose with our freedom in hand. And that's when death was arrested. And my life began. I get to live in that. We get to live in that promise, that truth of the gospel. And without that, we really don't have anything to talk about here. God, if we're not going to talk about the gospel, we might as well just close up shop. This is the only reason we're here. To make sure that we get this. That this message of sin condemning us, our choices, our sin condemning us to hell, no way of rescue, no way out of it. The one-way path, and we took it. You stepped into that darkness. You stepped into that mess. And you lived a perfect life. And then you died a horrendous death in perfect victory. You rose again on that third day. And you brought my freedom in hand. And I get to be clothed in your righteousness. I get to live with you inside me, dwelling in me and leading me so that one day I can rule with you at the right hand of the Father. You adopted me as your son. These are amazing truths and promises, God. It's the only thing that gives us joy. It's the only thing that gives us hope. It's the only thing that's going to bring us true happiness. So I pray as a church, we're infected with that message. And we're able to give it to those who need it so desperately, Lord. May you be honored and glorified in the singing that you hear and the lives that we live.